Daniel chapter 5 is where we are at this morning. We're not going to get too far through this chapter, uh, but there's some things that I want to look at this morning that I think will be an encouragement for us. And so we're going to dive into those things. I want to begin just by reading the first couple of verses. Um, the first four verses. This is a familiar passage to most people who are familiar with Scripture at all. Uh, this is where we find uh, the handwriting on the wall, and it's a proclamation against Babylon and against and and of their fall. Uh, in fact, if you look at the end of the chapter, that's and if you know your history, this is the day that it happens. In fact, so we're, we're going to talk more about that next week. But this week, I want to look at a few things. Let's read the first four verses. It says Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which were at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine, and praise the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. So Belshazzar comes in. He's going to have this feast for a thousand of his lords. And history bears this out. This is an interesting thing. And I want to make this point because it's part of what we want to talk about today. If you go read the historical documents, you find that there was a feast on the very night that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. This is a literal and a, and a very accurate description of what ha was happening while those things are going on. And so they take the, these vessels uh, from the temple that were captured from the temple. In fact, if you want to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 4 for just a moment. 2 Chronicles chapter 4. You know, I'm much more familiar with the articles in the tabernacle. And I sort of, I guess, ignorantly assume, hey, they're kind of the same. But what we have to realize is that the temple that Solomon built, uh, that was dedicated, that we read about in Second Chronicles, was vastly more ornate, was vastly more furnished uh, in many respects than the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was a place of worship, but it was also designed to be mobile. And so all of that all of that together simply means that when we get to the temple, we can't assume that they're identical because they're not. They're, they're very, very close. And the key things that are there, the labor and the altar out in the courtyard, the altar of incense, the showbread, all of those things in the holy place, and then the candle stand and the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, those things are unchanged. But when you get to the, the construction of the temple and how ordinate it was, we have to realize that it was significant. And so when Babylon, when, when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and he sacks Jerusalem and they take all of the gold and silver vessels and all of those things out of Jerusalem, it's a huge spoil. There's a lot taken. And so 2 Chronicles chapter 4, I just want to look at verses 7 and 8, because this gives us an idea. This is what they're drinking from. This is what was brought out. 
And it says, and he made 10 candlesticks of gold according to their form and set them in the temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. He also made 10 tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right and five on the left. And he made a hundred basins of gold. So here you have these basins and, and it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a goblet or a bowl. This is what they would, they're drinking from these hundred basins of gold. And that's what's brought out. And here, as they do that, they worship these pagan, these false gods of, uh, of these elements of gold and silver and wood and stone. And they use those and they defame them in the sense that they're used for pagan worship. Okay. Now, that's kind of where we're at. That's what's happening. Uh, we're going to pick up more of this context as we get into next week. But today, I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, and for lack of better terms, I call it subtle context. Because there is some context in the first verse of Daniel chapter 5 that we have to sort of be students of Scripture to, to grasp, to not miss. Okay, first of all, chapter 5 is out of chronological order. Chapter 5 is at the end of Belshazzar's reign, and if you read chapter 7 and 8, which we will get to, chapter 7 was written in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, and chapter 8 is written in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So, so there, it's, out of, it's out of historical, out of, excuse me, chronological order which is an interesting thing because it gives context to Daniel's insight into the writing on the wall. He's extremely familiar because Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 are further visions of these kingdoms, right? Nebuchadnezzar saw this, vis this vision of this man. He had the head of gold and the, uh, the arms and the chest of silver and, and then the, the brass and then the clay and the iron he sees that vision and it's a description of all of these kingdoms successively. And we looked at that and then we see the, uh, the, the stone cut out of the mountains without, made without hands and it crushes those, that kingdom. Uh, and Daniel chapter seven and Daniel chapter eight, when we get there, what we're going to find is that we're reacquainted with these kingdoms and they're not identical. They're talking about the same kingdoms. But by the time you get to, Daniel chapter 7, you have all of the same ones again, with the exception of Babylon, these three successive kingdoms. And then we get to chapter 8, one of them has already come in some respects, or is it, it's a foregone conclusion, and so there's only two being talked about. It's, it talks about the fall of the Persian Empire uh, and, and those kinds of things. And so Daniel is very familiar with the fall of Babylon. From God's perspective, what it's going to, maybe not in the details about what it's going to be like. He didn't know exactly what was happening and all those kinds of things, uh, militarily, for example, but he knew that it was going to fall. And he knew what was going to happen and he knew that it was coming soon. We also find that Daniel is not in, uh, as I say, not in Babylon. Daniel is not in power, so to speak, okay? You will remember that he found great favor with Nebuchadnezzar very early on in chapter one when he uh, was 10 times wiser than all of the others and was given uh, the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And then he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream and he's given a position of honor and authority. He interprets yet another Nebuchadnezzar's dreams uh, and he's, he, he, he has this position where he sits at the king's gate. He's a courtier of the king and it's not uncommon 
that those close counselors of a king are deposed or are removed from their positions when a new king comes to the throne. And so Daniel's not in that position anymore. And as we, we find further context leading up to that, further insight in chapter five, giving us that to the extent that here's, here's Belshazzar, he has no idea who Daniel is. So he's, he's not a key player anymore. Uh, the other thing that we need to understand is that there's been three kings before Belshazzar that you know, totals anywhere from uh, 12 to about 23 years from Nebuchadnezzar until the fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians. So to the end of Belshazzar's reign, there, there's, there's some kings in there. And it really gives us, this whole scene gives us some commentary on the state of the hearts of the kings of Babylon. At the end of chapter 4, the last verse, Nebuchadnezzar, as he recounts, as he's brought back to his senses, as he's humbled himself before the Lord and acknowledged that God is, in fact, sovereign and in control. He rules in the affairs of men. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth in his ways, judgment, and those that walk in, his, in pride he is able to abase. So we come from there, we go through this sequence of kings, and we come to this pagan worship where we're going to defile the, the instruments of the temple taken from Jerusalem to worship false gods, to worship the creation rather than the creator. It's a commentary on the state of the hearts of the kings of Babylon. Almost out of the blue. If you were reading the Bible for the first time from Genesis to Revelation, and you're reading through out of the blue, you pick up in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar. It's the first time he's mentioned anywhere, and who is he? Right? We, we know because there's these subtle contexts we, that he's out of chronological order and all of these things. We know that there's more playing into this. And so here's what we've got, this quick scenario this look at these kings in succession we have nebuchadnezzar and then after nebuchadnezzar we have uh and i'm going to butcher all of these names i'm sorry i don't speak uh the, the language i just don't amal marduk which uh which actually means evil i mean he was he was bad he was really bad and he only reigned for two years uh he was the son of nebuchadnezzar then we have narrow Glissar, and he reigns for uh, four years. He's the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll notice that down at the bottom there, he usurped the throne. He, he took it by force. Uh, then we have Labashai Marduk. Uh, he's the son of Nereglizer. So the, he's succeeded by his son. He rules for three months. It's not on there, but it's from April to June. He rules for three months. And then he's overthrown by uh, Nabonidus, who is the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and he rules until the fall of Babylon. But who's missing? And I'm doing this on purpose because I don't want us to miss this. Who is missing in this list of kings of Babylon? Belshazzar. He's not there. He is missing. You're right. Jesus is missing from their hearts. He's missing completely in this picture. 
but Belshazzar is not mentioned in this list of kings. If you go to Wikipedia, this is exactly what you're going to find. It's going to look just like this. Why? Because that's where I took it, right? And if you go read history books and things like that, what are you going to find? Something just like this. This is where this is what everyone is saying is happening. And there's a reason for that. Experts are still in denial, right? They're still in denial. And it's just another ruse to suppress truth and unrighteousness, right? If, if scripture is untrue, then I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to take it seriously. And no, in no way, shape, or form affects me. And I'm not sinful. I'm not in need of Jesus Christ and forgiveness for sin. If I can marginalize scripture and remove it from its place of authority somehow. And that's what's happened here in regard to, to Belshazzar. There's some problems with that, though. So because of the accuracy and the fulfillment of prophecies in Daniel, critics have long said uh, they've cast doubt on its reliability. They they assume that it's only as accurate as as it is because it was written after the fact. And that's what they've said, and they've said that for thousands of years, right? Herodotus, one of the foremost ancient historians, doesn't mention Belshazzar. Now he's several he's centuries after the the events. Okay, but but I bring him up in particular because he's one that experts point to. Well, Herodotus, who was so accurate on so many other things, doesn't even mention Belshazzar. And so they assume wrongfully that because of the accuracy of the prophecies in Daniel and just how specific they are, and here in chapter five, where here's Belshazzar, well, who's he? He's not even we don't even know anything about him they cast out on its reliability. They tried to move her from the 6th century BC to about the time of the Maccabees, which is 400 years later. Okay? They try to move it four centuries forward. Therefore, we could have specific prophecy and its fulfillment because it was written after the fact. That's their case. That's their point. That's what they're trying to do. But it's just like we encounter when it comes to creation. It's just like we encounter when it comes to other scientific accuracies in scripture. It's just like we encounter when we come to other historical accuracies in the Bible. It's all marginalizing. It's, it's, it's taking, it's cherry picking the evidence that exists. There's been a long, there was a long standing absence of extra biblical mention of Belshazzar. So outside of scripture, right? If it's only mentioned in the Bible, then hey, we can marginalize it. There's nothing to 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 substantiate it. Ancient historians didn't mention him, as I said. There was widespread agreement that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. History and the experts, quote-unquote, experts of history use this as criticism of the entire word of God. And I bring it up because this is a chapter that skeptics will go to. And we need to be prepared and ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And I'll tell you, there is a very good answer we're going to talk about this morning. That's all we're going to talk about this morning. Because we need to know that we can trust the word of God completely and whole. When God said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it literally means that God created the heavens and the earth. And what we find in creation around us is that that's exactly what is evidenced. When God says, 
that, hey, the, the, the rain falls in the mountains and it runs down the rivers and it fills into the oceans, but they never overflow. And that hydrological cycle that's very specifically described is then observed in nature, we would expect that because there's scientific accuracy. Truth is going to mesh and match truth. It'll always confirm itself. It's the nature of truth. It's exclusive. So we, we would expect those things to be true. When people come to passages in scripture like this, where here is somebody for thousands of years, we had no idea who he was, they're looking for a reason to throw shadow here on God's word. They want to remove it from legitimacy. They want to say, listen, aha, we've got you all along. You've been wrong. And if you're wrong about this, well, you're probably wrong about that stuff in Genesis. You're probably wrong about those other scientific things. Sure, we, there might be some things that are right, but we can get that right by observing nature. They want to remove it from its authority. This is a sin issue. This is a heart issue. Has nothing to do with the mind or reason. They're very smart people, but they're also very sinful people. They want to remove the authority of Scripture from their lives. Eighteen fifty-four rolls along. Now we've traveled a long way in history. Right, six six century BC forward to 1854, we had the discovery of the Nabonidus cylinders. Now, I'll, I'll just pause there for a moment. Nabonidus is credited as the father of archaeology, which is somewhat ironic because archaeology is the science that discovers all these things that prove Scripture is true. And I'll just tell you, there is yet to be an archaeological dig anywhere in the world that, is, that, doesn't, that, that refutes Scripture. Okay, Nabonidus cylinders. Mention Belshazzar as Nabonidus' son and heir. Okay, that's the first extra-biblical mention. So now we know that he exists. And not only that he exists, but he's the crown prince. He's the heir to the throne of Babylon. In 1882, just 30 years later, we find the Nabonidus Chronicles. Well, they were found, but they were finally translated and published. And what we find is that Nabonidus was largely an absentee king. You know why? Because he's spending all of his time on these archaeological digs. He's never in Babylon. That's what he's doing. There are those who suspect, and probably rightfully so, there is some historical uh, evidence of this, that Belshazzar was the one who overthrew the king before him. No, because Nabonidus was old at the time that he took, took the throne. Belshazzar is going to ascend to that throne, and he's, you know, there are those that think that that's the way that it went. And we don't know with certainty. There is some historical evidence to that fact, but uh, there's not a lot of it. So, But he was largely absent. He wasn't there. He reigned for about 10 years, give or take. Or excuse me, 17 years, give or take. And 10 of those years, he was gone. And we know this because in uh, not only does the Nabonidus Chronicles tell us this, but as you look 
the New Year's celebration that happened in Babylon only happened. It can only be presided over by the presiding, by the ruling king. And in the 17 years that he ruled, there is only seven of them recorded in Babylonian history. He was only there for seven years. The other 10 years, he was out doing his thing. And it also says that Nabonidus Chronicles also say that Belshazzar was the crown prince. Okay, so he's not just the heir, he's the crown prince. He was left in Babylon to rule. He was left in charge. He was co-regent with, he was co-ruler with his father Nabonidus. Nabonidus was away from Babylon when it fell, which was also confirmation, right? Here he is, he's not here. Belshazzar's reigning. He's presiding over everything that's happening there in Babylon. And we know that Nabonidus wasn't there. Belshazzar. In 1924, Persian verse account of Nabonidus. Nabonidus, uh, quote-unquote, entrusted kin kingship to his oldest son. Okay, so here are the Persians. They come in, and they're actually part of those who are taking over Babylon, and they're describing what's happening here. And as they're talking about what's going on in Babylon when they take it, this is part of what they talk about. The Nabonidus entrusted kingship to his oldest son, who was Belshazzar. And then throughout the early 1900s, there are several ancient cuneiform documents, texts translated. They mention Belshazzar. They mention him in the capacities that are there. They mention him in all the ruling and reigning in Babylon, all of those things. So why all the history? Why is this important? Well, like I said, there are subtle contexts here. We have the idea that, that this is the first encounter with Belshazzar. And, and because it's, even if, we, even if we put the chapters of Daniel chronologically, we would still encounter him for the first time out of the blue. There's no list of kings given in, and Daniel is different in that sense, right? In, in these Hebrew books, where we're talking about the kings of Israel and Judah, there's this successive line that's being kept. And while most kingdoms in the world do this, and Babylon does this as well, um, it's not important in Daniel's account of everything that's going on. To Daniel, ultimately, you think about it, it doesn't matter who the king is. They're there because this is who God has put over them. And that's what they're acknowledging. We've looked at that time and time again in Jeremiah 27, uh, verses 5 through 7, right? God says, listen, I'm giving, I, I, I rule everything, and I'm giving it to whomever I choose to rule. And at this point in history, I'm going to give it to Nebuchadnezzar so that he can be my instrument of correction to the nation, of, to, to the kingdom of Judah. The history that we read here should be confirmatory. Now, we don't oftentimes go outside of the Bible and grab onto all these things and look at them. But in this case, it gives us some encouragement, if I can leave it that way. So if Daniel was written four centuries after the events, consider this, it would be unlikely that the author would have known about Belshazzar. And I say that because other historians, ancient historians, didn't know about Belshazzar. 
the fact that he's mentioned it all would tend to indicate that it was written by somebody who was familiar with the details. The fact that Belshazzar is mentioned at all, not only is he mentioned, but it's, it's historically accurate and it confirms that it was penned by somebody near the time of the events. It was written by Daniel, who was there, who was in Babylon during the siege of the, the, the Medes and the Persians as they're trying to come in to Babylon. He was there watching it happen. He was there experiencing it. He was there seeing these kings rise and fall. He could accurately record what he had personally seen. Now, there's a couple of things. And, and this, is, this is where we're going to end. This is what we're going to stop with, right? Here's all this history. Here are all these things. The world around us does its best to marginalize, to eliminate, to remove the authority of God's word. Yet time and time again, the truth confirms itself. And that's exactly what we find here with Belshazzar. This is exactly where we, we end with, not with Daniel completely, but this is where we end that thought, that idea. Okay. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24, verse 35. Now in Matthew 24, we have Jesus here, and he's speaking about uh, eschatology, end times things. He's talking about those kinds of things. Um, and part of what he's getting into at this point, 24, 35, uh, is <clears throat> he's talking about the immediacy of what's coming. And there are those who would, who would say, hey, well, Matthew 24 has um, dual fulfillment. And, and we're going to get into the more, a little bit more of that as we progress through Daniel. So we're going to leave that where it's at. Um, I tend to be in agreement, uh, and in part, and we've already talked about this, um, that, that um, uh, yeah, I, I think there is a little bit of dual fulfillment happening in Matthew 24, but it, it, nonetheless, the substantive part of what we want to talk about is no matter what's happening in the world around us, no matter what tribulation or hardship or persecution we are enduring, whatever's going on, and that's really the apocalyptic scene that's being described, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's giving that indication throughout Matthew 24. This is it. Everything is coming to a close, uh, and whether it's the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, or whether it's something greater looking forward to, it, it's a bad day. And at the end of that bad day, Right? This is what Jesus tells us. He says, heaven and earth shall pass away. It'll all go. It'll all pass away. It won't exist. It, it, it is shakable. It is temporal. But he concludes this. My words shall not pass away. That which God has said, that which, which he has proclaimed, is always true, remains eternal, and is unchanging in its substance and in its in its truth, in its rightness, in its information that it gives us. 
And for you and I as believers, it should be no surprise, right? Here is, here's Belshazzar, completely unknown to history until 1852, 54. Yet, Scripture recorded it. We have the accuracy, the, the confirmation that God got it right thousands of years before man could catch up. And that gives us the assurance because it, it confirms exactly what Jesus said, that, that his words will not pass away. Right? We know the Bible is axiomatic. We know that it's self-proving. We know that it, that it confirms itself. And part of the way that it does that is through the prophetic accuracy that we find within its pages. I'm going to give you one example here from Daniel, if, if you'll bear with me for just a moment. We have this writing on the wall that happens. Uh, let's just go back to Daniel 5. Let's, let's read it. Daniel chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 5. It says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So you can imagine, here they are. They're celebrating, they're worshiping these pagan gods, they're drinking from these sacred vessels that have been dedicated to the service of the temple of Jerusalem. And in the middle of all that, this hand comes out of nowhere and writes on the wall. Now, every picture that you ever look at, it's a, it's a big hand. And I don't know, maybe it was big, maybe it wasn't, but it's, here it is. And Belshazzar sees the part of the hand that's doing the writing. And it's written on the wall. The king's countenance was changed, it says. His thoughts troubled him, so the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one another. I mean, he's terrified. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, same guys that Nebuchadnezzar always looked to. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, whosoever shall read these writings, show me the interpretation thereof, shall be clothed in scarlet and have a chain of the gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why could he only offer the third kingdom, third ruler in the kingdom? Because he himself is second. That's the highest position he could offer in his kingdom. Interesting that it's very specific. It's very detailed, isn't it? Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Turn with me to Isaiah 45. Now, it says in verse 6, Daniel, Daniel 5, 6, the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loose and his knees smote one against another. That is the accurate recording of the state that Belshazzar was in. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Now remember, God gives the ruling of his affairs to men, to whomever he pleases, Babylon's time has come to a close, and Cyrus, named by name, hundreds of years, well, not hundreds of years, excuse me, before he was ever known, is named by name 
by the prophet Isaiah to be the one who's going to bring Babylon down. Whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings. That sounds familiar. That's very specific. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And it goes on and it continues to describe the, the fall of Babylon. You see this very specific prophecy, and then we see it recorded accurately. Here's what happened. Belshazzar, the joints of his loins were loosed, just like Isaiah had prophesied. The accuracy, the detail, the specifics, the longevity, the trustworthiness of God's word gives us assurance. It gives us assurance, right? We've trusted that here is God and he has created everything. We didn't see it happen, nor is it reproducible in a laboratory. We can't. The book of Hebrews tells us that by faith, we know the worlds were framed. We understand it by faith. We trust that God's word is true. And then he leads us down this path of progressive revelation where we see further and further the insights of his word and we experience it in the world around us because truth is confirmatory of truth. And God's word is the source of truth. In Numbers chapter 23, Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? This is Balaam speaking on, right? You remember Balaam. He was the guy that was hired by Balak to curse Israel. And he really wanted to go because they were offering him half the kingdom. I mean, ultimately, he, he's going to get paid very well to do this. And so he finally gets on his donkey and goes and donkey turns out of the way three times. And finally he beats the donkey, remember, and then God opens the mouth of the donkey and says, hey, the angel of the Lord is there waiting to kill you. And God tells him, listen, Balaam, you're going to go, but you can only say what I tell you to say. And so as, as Balaam takes him up to, the, to this high hill and says, hey, curse him, and then he blesses him. And it ends up happening three times, and he blesses them all three times. And this is Balaam, and he says, listen, I can only speak what God tells me to speak, Balak. That's, that's the way this thing works, and he has told me to bless him. And, he, and, this is, and in the middle of all that, this is what he says. God is not a man that he should lie. This is the nation of Israel. These are God's chosen people. These are the ones that he has established his covenant with, that he has established as his illustrative people to convey to you and I generations future his grace his justice his love and his mercy to illustrate with great specificity the sacrifice of his son that was coming and the salvation that was freely offered to every man woman and child by faith in Jesus Christ God is not a man that he should lie, that he would renege, or that he would go back on the promises that he had made. He is trustworthy. 
Neither is he the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Now, there are instances in Scripture where we see that it repented God. It grieved him. He wanted to turn from what he had done. But it's not a mistake in the sense of what's being here. Oh, I've made a mistake, and now I need to change my mind. There's a difference. Has he said, and shall he not do it? And it's a rhetorical question. Of course not. When God says something, he's going to do it. It's as good as done when he utters the word. Or has he spoken, and shall not he make it good? Of course he'll deliver on his word. Let's look in 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which, which by the gospel is preached unto you. We have this promise in the word of God that is trustworthy, that is accurate, that is stable, that is unchanging. It says we are saved, we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, by the truth that is herein. One of the questions this morning that was asked in Sunday school, and it was a good question, uh, and it was quoting from Isaiah, excuse me, from Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, if I remember right. And, and we were looking in Hebrews chapter 10, and it says, Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, or something along those lines. And the question was, what is the book that's being referenced? And it's scripture. It's, it's all of scripture is dedicated to making him known. When Jesus encounters the disciples there on the road to Emmaus, where does he begin? with Moses and the prophets. He starts in the beginning and he goes all the way through the scripture up to that point, the Old Testament, and gives them a clear outline, a clear picture, indications, this is me being discussed. This is me being foreshadowed. This is me. This is an example of the sacrifice that is going to be made. And at that point, this is, the, this is all looking forward to the sacrifice that I just finished making. We are born, again, not of corruptible seed, not something that is corruptible or, or sinful, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. In other words, as sure as the word of God is, so is our salvation. So is our new nature. Now, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we are sinless. And we talked about this a little bit this morning as well. But what it does mean is that the relationship that we enter into with God as a, uh, through the forgiveness of sins purchased by the shedded blood of Jesus Christ is sure and stable. It's not something corruptible, not something changeable. He says, for all flesh is as grass. Okay, the efforts of men, whether it's the things that we're doing to obtain and to earn or to merit righteousness or to maintain righteousness, all flesh is as grass. All the glory of men as the flower of grass. 
which is an interesting thing to think of, right? The best that we could offer, all glory of men. Here's Nebuchadnezzar standing there in Babylon in chapter four, right? And he says, look at me. This is Babylon. This is the temple built to my glory. And even Babylon in its splendor, being one of the wonders of the world, of the ancient world, is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. It doesn't last. It's unsustainable. Where's Babylon today? You can go see it. You can go to Babylon and you can see the ruins, the bricks that are stacked up, that are falling all over one another. You can see the ruins of the glory of Babylon, of that which caused Nebuchadnezzar to be puffed up in pride You can go see it, and you see it in ruins. You see it in dust. You see it it had to be dug out of the earth because it had been so forgotten. Yeah, we think to ourselves, I know better than God. I'm going, you know, we don't read about Belshazzar. History, we don't, you know, the things outside of Scripture, we don't find anything there. And and the thing that, that, that just causes me to shake my head are the believers those who would name the name of christ who would say i am a believer but would say listen i'm going to put the word of man on the same platform of authority as the word of god to say that the only means by which we can properly interpret scripture is through the authority of man whether it's false religion whether it's science, whatever man-made thing that we have to interpret Scripture through, we're saying that it's only understandable through the fallible, temporal, sinful nature of mankind and his finite understanding. Rather than boldly standing on the Word of God and saying, this is truth, the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The surety. I imagine in the past that there were those who would say, th- th- those believers who would say, Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon because scripture says so. Because that's what Daniel 5 says. You, the last verse in Daniel 5 talks about Darius the Mede coming in and conquering Babylon that very night. He was the last king of Babylon. And I imagine that there are those who would stand upon that truth and for centuries were made fun of, were mocked, were teased, were ridiculed because we, you know, we don't know anything about him. Here's Herodotus. Here are all these ancient historians, dozens of them, and none of them mention Belshazzar. God said it. Therefore, it must be true. And what do we find? The steadfast faith of those who would unwaveringly stand on the word of God vindicated. Because truth substantiates and confirms truth. Psalm 19, verse 7, turn there with me.
Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is entire. It is true. That's what the word perfect means. Converting the soul. What what has God given us in his law but the understanding of our need for Jesus Christ? The law is our schoolmaster to show us. And it says that the testimony, the witness, the, the word of God itself is sure that it's steadfast, that we can stand upon it, that it is a firm foundation. It is trustworthy, making wise the simple. That person who would say, Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon because God's word says so, was wise beyond their time. The simple, those who would simply trust, who would humbly say, God has said it, I believe it, were proven to be right. And it isn't just that. You look out throughout history and you look at the understanding of man and the things that that we thought about the, the human body and how it worked and how it healed itself. You know, melancholy people, they just have too much phlegm. And so what we need to do is get the phlegm out and then they'll be happy again. You know, I mean, all of these things that we, and, and then we begin to look at what the word of God says about things. And we find that there's a vast difference that the understanding of man is put on its head because it's the simple thing. It's the wrong thing. The, the word of God stands firm and true. And so there's no need for shame. There's no need for you or I or any other believer to, to say, listen, I, yeah, this must be wrong. Or somehow, somewhere, we don't have to have any shame about it. Uh, about whether it's Belshazzar, about whether it's scientific understanding, whether it's about the nature of salvation. There is no room for shame when we stand upon the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, let's begin in verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Here it is. Here's the truth of God. This is how we're saved. And, and the world around us, those who are unsaved, the preaching of the cross to them who are perishing is foolishness. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Whether it's the person who would try to divest the word of God of its authority and its divine inspiration, thereby marginalizing its effect upon their life or their, their need to listen to and heed what it says. All of it is an attempt to exalt the wisdom of man to a place, to the place of God. Where is the wise? 
he says in verse 20, where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The best, the wisdom, the understanding that man had to offer was made foolishness by the wisdom of God. For after that is that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. After the, the wisdom of God, the world by the wisdom knew not God. This is, this is reminiscent of what we read in Romans chapter 1, that here is God revealing himself through all of his creation, yet those are there who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want their deeds to be revealed as evil. And so they, they remove that. They take the wisdom of God, the truth of God, the veracity and the authority of his word, and they marginalize it. Verse 22, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's neither a sign, nor is it wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Right here is your Messiah. Here is the one that has been foretold and prophesied. And here he has come and you crucified him. You didn't accept him. Just as it said in Isaiah chapter 53, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And, the, <clears throat> and under the Greeks, it's foolishness. The Stoicism that the Greeks aspired to, that they put into practice their, their philosophy, was largely a man-made philosophy. It was the exaltation of man. And you look at the, the, the Stoics and the quote-unquote wisdom of the Stoics, and while there may be nuggets of truth, and we can apply 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and here are those things which are good, and we're going to hold on to them, by and large, it was removing God from his authority and putting man in the same position. They would say that within man, there is a divine spark, and each one of us has this divine spark. And we hear that, and we think of something different in a Christian context, but what they meant by it is that there is the ability within man to be as God. Therefore, man has, and so it was based upon, it was a humanism. And they're seeking after that wisdom, and that's going to that's remove God from his position of authority, from his position of creator and supreme ruler, and elevate man to a position equal to that, or superior to that of their, his creator. But unto them which he called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, here we're, we're into statements of fact. The foolishness of God, if we, could, if we could even digress to the extent we would say that God has any foolishness whatsoever, his foolishness is greater than the wisdom of man. And the weakness, if we could digress enough to, to say that God even has weakness, is stronger than man. 
For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, pause there for a moment. I spent some time and we went some door-to-door evangelism with a guy and, and the guy that I was with refused to go to anywhere but the most destitute neighborhoods that we could find. He says, those rich people, they don't need Jesus. And I said, what? And this is the verse that he used. This is the verse that he used. Now listen, the need is exactly the same. The need for Christ is exactly the same. The heart may be different. The heart may be different. Jesus talked about, uh, you know, it's easier for a camel to enter, go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he gave me that verse too. And my response was, so you're telling me there's a chance, right? I mean, why? If Jesus said, go unto all nations, all people, if he wanted us to only go to the poor, didn't he say, go to all nations, preaching to the poor? We, we can't take that. There are those who, because they have exalted themselves, because they found themselves in positions of authority, just like Nebuchadnezzar, removed God from his pedestal and put themselves, exalt themselves to that level. And that's what he's talking about here. Not many who are in that position are called. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They're going to fall. Pride comes before the fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. It's coming. We need to share the gospel with them too, so that when they do fall, they realize, yes, there is a God in heaven. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he fell to the extent that he was driven out of town, laid in the grass, ate the grass, his hair grew long, until he acknowledged that God is supreme, that he rules from heaven. For God has chosen, he says in verse 27, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Really, he's making a comparative statement between those things that are exalted and those things that are humble. God has chosen the base things, the the low things, the humble things of the world. And he's chosen those things, the base things of the world, which are despised. God has chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to not things that are. Why? So that no flesh may glory in his presence. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar had gone and and they were with the king of, uh, I feel like I have a lot of doubt about this next thing I'm going to say, but it goes with the kings um, of Sodom and Gomorrah and one other king. And they fight against this other king and and they, they win. And they want to, they want to pay Abraham for his services, essentially. And Abraham refuses payment, he says, because I don't want anyone to think that anyone but God has established Abraham. And I, I think right in there is where you encounter Melchizedek. But I might have the wrong kings, okay? But that, that, that account happens. But that's his point. I don't want anyone to think that God, anyone except for God has established me. And Abraham at that point is a very wealthy man. I mean, he's, he's a landowner. He's a landowner to, to the degree that they don't even know that he owns their land too. 
I mean, you know, wherever his foot goes, they did, they were doing themselves a disservice. Let's go get Abraham. We'll bring him to our place. Well, now it's now it's his. You know, they didn't know. <laughs> but he was clear. Only God has established me. The base things are lifted up so that no one can glory in his presence. No one can say, look at me. Look what I have attained to. Look what, I, what wisdom I have brought. Look at what understanding has brought me to a position of anything. That's not where it's at. There's nothing there. God chooses the weak things, the meager things, and he exalts those things. Now, that has nothing to do with, and don't interpret it as such, it has nothing to do with socioeconomic status. It has to do with a heart that is submitted and humbled before the Lord. God will give those, give some, and I know this from 2 Timothy, God will give some wealth, and he tells them what to do with their wealth. He's given it to them for a reason. There's no shame here in taking the simple truths of Scripture and standing upon them. And I bring that up because there are those who would say, well, listen, this guy over here is very wise. This guy's really smart. Mike Riddle in many respects is a good example of this, right? Here he is. He comes in. He gets invited to go speak at NASA. I mean, literal NASA scientists right here in front of him. And they're, they're there to try and shoot him down. They're not there to hear this presentation he's going to give. They know who he is. They know his reputation. They know he's, where he's come from. And so he goes in prepared. And he stands upon the truth of the word of God. And he says, listen, I didn't answer a single question, but I shared the gospel. That's what he did. When you look at the, the debate that Ken Ham had with uh, Bill Nye, right? I mean, first, uh, but what does Ken Ham do? He focuses on the important thing. Here I have a national platform to share the gospel. The most important thing that I could say to anyone that's going to hear my voice in that time is Jesus Christ is Lord and he has given his life for you. And what does he spend most of his time saying? Just that. Did he, quote unquote, lose the debate as a result? Absolutely. Well, maybe not absolutely. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it didn't matter. He was unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans 1.16, one of our memory verses. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Check. Put that one on the board at home, right? He was unashamed of it. He didn't bear any, he, he, didn't, he didn't care. If people were going to make fun of him, if he was going to be mocked, if he was going to be scorned, if he was going to, because the authority of the word of God, this is the power of God to salvation. Second Timothy chapter three. We're going to close here. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 15 through 17. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, all scripture is given by your inspiration of God. In other words, it is his word. He has spoken it. He has preserved it. And it is profitable for doctrine, those things which we ought to believe. 
for reproof, right? To correct someone for correction, for instruction in righteousness. As we're talking about in, in Bible study on Thursday nights, obedience. The word of God is where we take our obedience from. That is instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly, may, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. If we want to be established, if we want to be somebody who is ready to do whatever God would call us to do, whatever God would call us to do, the thing that we need to know most is the word of God. And we need to stand upon that truth unashamedly, just as those who would say Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, even though we haven't discovered it yet, whatever the case may be, God is right and man is wrong. Because the wisdom of God is higher than the, the foolishness of God is higher than the wisdom of man. And we can stand unashamedly on that truth. We don't have to have the evidence to believe it. That's not faith. We can have our faith confirmed by it, but we choose to believe because here it is. This is what God has said. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth that it brings, uh, the authority, Lord, that it holds. I thank you, Lord, that it is persevering and trustworthy, that it is unshakable, and that, Lord, even when we uh, encounter perceived difficulties, those things that are seemingly unconfirmed or, or, seem, or error within Scripture, Lord, we know that it's something amiss on our part, as has been confirmed over and over throughout history. You are the creator. You are the sustainer of all life. Lord, you know the beginning from the end better than we do. And God, I thank you for this little encounter that we have with Belshazzar and the confirmation that it brings to each one of us, Lord, of the authenticity and the accuracy and the trustworthiness of your word. If you would be so specific, Lord, as to lay out in Scripture things that are going to happen with kingdoms and nations and kings and, and, and wars, Lord, how much more would we be able to trust you with those things that we can't see, taste, touch, and feel? Lord, that are completely and solely within your realm of supernatural and divine creation and, and existence. Lord, I pray for your grace that we might hold fast the word of truth. God, that we would unashamedly stand upon it, that we would, Lord, know it. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. We ask that as we worship now, as we sing praise unto who you are and for all that you've done, God, that you would be honored as, by the sacrifice of our lips. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.